So let's read from Isaiah chapter 43. But now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory whom I formed and made. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Hey, a few weeks ago in my uh, pastor's letter, I shared some stats from a book that's called The Great De-Churching. And this book is, is looking at the state of Christianity in the United States specifically over the last 30 years. And so the premise of this book is that we are in the midst of the single most significant change in religious participation and church attendance in like all of American history. And so the, the premise is, and, and what they're showing through their research, is that the church has actually declined in America over the last 30 years at an unprecedented rate. And so if you take the, the two great movements of sort of American revivals in history, the first and second great awakening, if you add up all the people that joined the church through the first and second great awakening, it's actually still not as many people as have left the church in the last 30 years. So this is the biggest religious shift or movement in American history, but it's not growth, it's decline. People are leaving the church in record numbers. Now, I, I found this book, The Great Dechurching, to be really helpful in its research and a lot of the suggestions they give for how to sort of turn around the, the church are, are, are good and, and thoughtful, you know, sort of prescriptions for the church. And yet at the same time, to be H, to be honest, I, I did not find it to be the most compelling uh, argument for how, how the church is going to turn around in our culture. And, and the reason for that is because it, it, it seemed to me, and not to be critical, but it seemed to me like the book was suggesting if we can just do better, like if we are more compelling believers and if our churches are more like culturally engaged and savvy, then people will just start coming back to the church. And I think that's a definite maybe, like a big old maybe. And maybe that's kind of what has gotten us there in the first place. 
like a, a huge emphasis on what we are doing as believers, a big emphasis on what the church is doing, how it's engaging, how are we performing, what kind of, what kind of show are we putting on, you know, how are we presenting ourselves to the world, are, are we being winsome and stuff? Maybe that's actually what's caused a lot of the decline of the church in America. And maybe it's not the thing that's going to bring people like flocking back to the church if we just like up our game a little bit, you know? What if what we need is far, far deeper? Like if the problem exists deep in the hearts of, of men and women, if it's a soul level problem where people are, are leaving the church because they don't feel any sense of connection to the people or any, any intimacy with God or any presence of his spirit, then maybe what we need to do is not just try harder and do and be better, but we need to, to focus ourselves on receiving a, an outpouring of God's presence that we cannot generate on our own. Like maybe we need something that we can't create and control and protect and defend and advance and all of that. Now what I have in mind here is not some like return to a previous state of like American Christianity or something. We're not just after a Christian nation or something. That's not the goal. The goal is to see people's hearts and lives changed by Christ. To see them coming back to church because their hearts are so gripped with God's love for them that they cannot help it and they go out and share that love of God with everybody that they know. What we need is a reformation and revival in our hearts, in our churches, in our ministries. What we need is more of God's presence and power in our lives. So we've been studying the book of Isaiah for the last two and a half months, and we've moved now into the last third of the book, and there's a, there's a shift in the last third of the book where the theme becomes God compelling his people to be revived, to come back to him, to return to him, to be revived in their worship, in their discipleship, in the entirety of their lives. And Isaiah 43 is my favorite passage in this entire book. If I've said that about a different passage up to this point, it's no longer valid. It's Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 through 7. I mean, this is a, a staggering picture of God's heart towards us. And it begins this, this section where the, the whole theme is revival and how God brings revival and renewal into our hearts and lives and, and into the people of God. It happens by the love of God being poured out from the Father into our hearts. I remember a couple of years ago uh, hearing Isaiah 43 and just being absolutely overcome. I mean, this only happened a couple of times in my life. Um, but actually, I, I had just come back in, in the middle of the day for lunch or something back home. Our, all three of our kids were in school, which is like a mini miracle in itself. You know, no one was sick. You know, school was happening, all of that. And so Jesse was home, and, and I think she was just sharing something that she had read that morning. And so she read Isaiah 43 out loud. And, and there was like another Bible out, so I picked it up. And, and I'm telling you, something came over me where like months or years or decades of like stress and sadness and anger and like confusion just started to like pour out of me in tears at the sound of Isaiah 43. I'm not a big crier. I went like a decade without crying. I'm not one of those people where it just kind of always comes out. I think of Jack Donaghy in 30 Rock where he says, you get one good cry in life and you've chosen well. That's how I felt. 
I was just absolutely undone hearing God's heart for me. That's my prayer for you this morning. So we're going to see three things. Our need of revival, God's heart for revival. And then third, how we get this renewing, reviving love of God into our hearts. Let's pray. And Father, we confess, we admit, we know that our need of you is so great. It's, it's complete. It's, it's total. We need you, Lord. Though we try, we cannot do this life on our own. Nothing in our, our hands we bring simply to that cross we cling. Show us your heart this morning, Lord. God, people have heard all sorts of things about you. They've been given images of you from, from churches or, or from parents or from schools or, or systems of belief that have not been true to who you are and to your heart. And we're trying to, to rid ourselves of those things. But we want to hear from your word. We want to hear from your heart this morning, God. Those of us who are, who are sleeping, struggling, sinning, suffering this morning, would you wake us up? Would you pour out your renewing, reviving love into our hearts? It's the only hope for our lives, the only hope for our churches. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So our need of revival. And I actually want to back up to Isaiah 42. So just before our, our passage begins in Isaiah 43, here's, here's what God is saying to his people in chapter 42. He says, who is blind like the one in covenant with me? Blind like the servant of the Lord. You have seen many things, but you pay no attention. Your ears are open, but you do not listen. This is Israel's condition right now. They have turned away from God. They are not listening to God. They're not paying attention. They have God's word, but they're not listening to it. God is calling for them. He's wooing them, but they are going their own way. They see no need of him. They're miserable, and yet they're still not choosing God. They're choosing their, their empty, dead religion, and they're doing life without him. So what do we mean by renewal and revival? Uh, the late Tim Keller wrote this 10-week uh, study, small group study for his church back in the 90s on prayer and revival. It's not published anywhere. I don't think you can find it online. I've got the PDF. It's like weird flex, but okay. It's what things pastors brag about. I got the PDF. I might be willing to share it. But here's what he says in, in the first study. He says, spiritual revival or renewal is a work of God in which the church is beautified and empowered because the normal operations of the Holy Spirit are intensified. These are the normal operations of the Spirit. Conviction of sin, enjoyment of grace and the Father's love, access to God's presence, creation of deep community, and loving relationships. He goes on to say this view differs or opposes three other common views. First, the charismatic notion that see, sees revival as essentially miracles, healings, prophecy, and revelations. It can include some of those things, but that's not the essence. Second, the fundamentalist view that revivals are simply vigorous seasons of activity. You know, it might lead to more serving, but busyness is not at the core of revival. And third, the secular view that revivals are primitive, emotionally cathartic events where evangelists psychologically manipulate uneducated people. It's not that. But rather, renewal is a work of God. It's, it's the ordinary work of God to draw his people back to him. 
When, when we've gone astray, when we've grown cold or dry, renewal is his way of, of drawing us back to him. That's the ordinary work that he does in our lives to bring us back. And revival is when that work happens at, at an unbelievable rate. It's, it's when renewal happens at, at, a, at a rate that cannot be explained by, by any human means or human terms at all. Revival is the ordinary work of renewal in a sudden and surprising way, especially among a community of people. And so the goal of life is, is not revival itself, but the goal of life is to be revived into a deeper relationship with God. Renewal and revival are these ordinary means by which God brings us back to himself individually and congregationally and, and in a broader community. And it's exactly what Israel needed in that moment, in, in the time that Isaiah was writing. You remember God's words, they have his law, but they are turning away. Verse 23, this is 42, chapter 42, which of you will listen to this or pay attention who will hear these words and pay attention? God is, is compelling us, begging us, wooing us back to himself. In Israel's sins throughout the book of Isaiah, there's three main sins that we see over and over. The first is idolatry. We see that prominently in a few chapters. The second is the neglect of the poor and needy. We see that powerfully in a couple chapters. But in almost every single chapter of Isaiah, and there's 66 of them, we see Israel's main sin is their dry and lifeless religion. They're actually still doing all the stuff. They're still holding the services. They're still doing the sacrifices. They're still going through the motions. They've got the festivals. They've got the Sabbath. Like they're actually doing God's law for the most part, but they're not doing it from the heart. They're doing it in their own strength. They're not doing it out of an overflow of love. And they're, they're actually resisting the presence of God all along and doing life on their own. This seems to grieve the heart of God more than anything. More than even like blatant idolatry from, from people who don't know him and don't follow him. It's when his own children have his word, have access to him, but they choose to do life apart from him. In the same way today, the natural drift of our hearts is always away from God. Have you noticed that? Have you felt that? Like you never drift into like a greater awareness of God's love for you. You never drift into personal holiness. Like if you just kind of leave it alone, you end up a lot more Christ-like. That's not how it happens. Because we still have this sin nature because of the, the forces of the world and the enemy against us, we always move like gravity back to our old way of life. And this is why we need continuous renewal and we need seasons of revival. And can you picture the, the posture of God in this moment? He's not like leaning back with his arms crossed and a, and a frown on his face demanding that, that they would turn back to him, that they would finally come to their senses and, and give up this old way of life. And if they can prove that they're really sorry enough, maybe he'll be happy with them. No, the Father is, is leaning forward. Year after year of this neglect from his people, decade after decade, century after century, where they want nothing to do with him in a, in a deep and a real way, he is still leaning forward saying, will you listen to me? You're my child, you're my son, you're my daughter. Will you please hear me? Will you hear my heart for you? So God calls us back to himself, and this is our greatest need. 
Now, this is the second thing. The heart of God for our revival, for our renewal. Look at our passage, chapter 43. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Maybe some of you feel that illustration even now. You feel like you're passing through the waters. The waters or the rivers of life are are crashing down on you. You're overwhelmed by them. You're just trying to get above water. You're just trying to catch a breath. You feel like you're drowning in this life. Maybe you're passing through fiery trials, like you are getting burned in this life, like it's just heating up and heating up and heating up, and you're just dying for relief. And God says, I am still with you. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. In the Old Testament, God has a way of of pulling the Israelites out of these conditions, but, but not right away. I mean, if you, if you look back in their history, at the end of Genesis, they end up in Egypt because God has led them there in a time of famine to save their lives, to save the people. And so he provides for them in Egypt. But the longer they're in Egypt, they, become to, uh, they begin to be oppressed and enslaved. And so they cry out to God. And again, he comes down and leads them out of Egypt through the waters, through the great sea. But even then, they're in the wilderness. They need food. They need drink. Again, they're in a time of need. And again, God provides. Finally, they make it into the promised land. But even there, they're attacked by other nations. They're carried off into exile. And again, God meets them there and draws them back to himself. It's the same in our own lives, that God often leads us into positions of need where we're incredibly uncomfortable, even unhappy, even wondering where in the world he is. And he doesn't solve all of our problems right away, but he lets us feel a little bit of the waters and a little bit of the fire. And then in the moment of our greatest need, he swoops in and he lifts us up. He draws us back to himself. And it's not cruelty, it's grace, it's mercy that he would draw us back continually. And so why does he do it? Why does God come down? Why does he work good things for his people? We see it in verse 4, because you are precious and honored in his sight and because he loves you. That's why he does it. That's why he draws you to himself, because he loves you. He created you. He created you to know him and be in relationship with him. It's why you exist. His love is so significant for you that he will not let you be burned. He will not let you drown. He will draw you back to himself. And then the second reason comes in verse 7, because you've been created for his glory. You exist not just to receive his love, but to to represent what's true of him in the world. We actually bring glory to God by our need being met with his power and his provision and his love. 
So even if you're afraid that God might give up on you or stop loving you because of something you've done or some way that you are or anything like that, you can remember that God is actually, he has his glory tied up in you as his child. And if he stops loving you, then he stops getting glory in all the world. And if that happens, then he's broken his promise, which is that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. See that in Isaiah 11. And so you have these two incredible assurances that you are deeply loved and that you exist for his glory. He will not stop loving you and he will not give up on his plan to cover the earth with his glory. So you know he will not give up on you. Now, if we go back to the the unpublished Keller study, he says the first element in a true revival is always an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's always an outpouring of the presence of God. He says this, the presence of God among his people becomes evident and palpable in a revival. Nominal Christians, Christians in name only, get converted. Longtime members talk about Christ in radiant terms or express repentance in new ways. It electrifies people when this first begins to happen. Corporately, there is more passion, freedom, and a sense of the presence of God in worship. It always begins with an outpouring of God's presence. And if we can look ahead just a page to Isaiah 44, God makes a very similar promise. This is what the Lord says. He who made you, who formed you in the womb, who will help you, do not fear. For I will pour water on dry ground, streams on the thirsty land, and I will pour out my spirit on your offspring, and my blessing on your descendants. God is promising to pour out his presence, his spirit of love onto the dry ground of our lives. This is what he longs to do. He longs to satisfy our every need, to pour out his presence in our life. And that's where renewal and revival begins. It's out of that position of great love that we go out and we share our faith and see people's lives transformed and come into the church. It all starts with revived hearts and it all starts with God pouring his love into our hearts. And so that's the third thing. How do we, how do we get this in us? How do we get the renewing, reviving love of God into our hearts? Like, does anybody else feel like that's one of the hardest things to do in all of life is simply to, to remember and believe and to live in the love of God? This has been a, a, a lifelong struggle and a lifelong pursuit for me simply to get the love of God into my heart. It's, it's a daily challenge for me just to get it, to wrestle it down into my heart. Richard Lovelace, my boy, an old theologian, he put it like this. Christians who are no longer sure that God loves them and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously, radically insecure people. Much less secure than non-Christians because they have too much light to rest easily under the constant messages about the righteousness they are supposed to have. Do you hear what Lovelace is saying? Somebody who's a Christian, who's a believer, a a good religious, moral, spiritual person, but does not fully grasp God's love for them is actually far more insecure than a non-believer. 
because they, they have the law, they, they have the weight of what they're supposed to be and what they're supposed to do, all that they're supposed to be doing in life and in the church. And now they're more secure than they ever, insecure than they ever were before, simply because they have not fully understood and believed the love of God. It has not worked its way into their hearts. Now, if this is true, and I think it is, think of the way it will shape our lives, our daily lives. An insecure spirituality will always have to perform. Like if you're insecure in the core of your being and you're not quite sure if if you're good enough, if you're okay enough, if you're accepted, then what will you do? You will always have to perform. You will always have to strive to achieve, to prove yourself. You will always have to defend yourself, protect yourself, try to advance and promote yourself. It will be an insecure, performance-based life. That's life where you have just enough of Christianity, but you don't have the love of God at the center. It's, It's actually a pretty miserable life. It's insecure, it's grinding, it's striving, it's scheming. And it's also what what keeps our our churches from seeing more believers becoming deeply formed and and fruitful disciples of Jesus. It's all over our churches. And so now the churches have a, a preoccupation with superficial teaching and with putting on a great performance and choosing excellence and production over true spiritual formation, all for the sake of comfort and church growth. Loveless, in in his old book on renewal, he says it's like individuals and pastors come to this agreement that the pastors won't really challenge the individuals and the individuals won't really challenge the pastors so they can both go on building their own kingdoms. But it's radically insecure. There's there's no love, there's no power, there's there's no strength at the core of it. God wants to pour his love into our hearts. He wants to replace the insecure, performing spirituality with a deep abiding in Christ. The task for us is to to release and replace. Release the, the insecure, striving, performing spirituality and replace it with the love of the Father. Constantly, day after day, hour after hour, release the striving, performing, insecure self. Welcome the Father's embrace. Welcome His love over and over and over. This is the message of Isaiah. God is coming to His people. He's wooing them back. He's calling us back. Despite all of their foolish rebellion and self-sufficiency, He's going to revive them again. He's going to pour out His Spirit. And it's exactly what he wants to do in our lives. The question is, how do we get more of God's presence and his power in our lives? There's only one application for this week. At one point I had five, I cut it down to three, then I cut it down to just one, all right? It's only one thing to do today, and it's barely even doing. It's to receive. To receive the Father's embrace. Galatians 4 says this, When the time set had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, 
The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. And he just used the word sons there as a way to emphasize that we are all heirs, both men and women. We are firstborn sons and we inherit the entire thing, the entire kingdom. Everything that Jesus owns, we now own. Everything that's true of him is now true of us. All the eternal rewards and blessings are now ours because we are in Christ. God has poured out the life of his son in such a way that we receive it ourselves. We receive the very life of Christ. He sent his own son to pay the debt. That's what it means to redeem, to pay the debt that we owed. The penalties for all of our sins. He sent his son to take care of that. And so we can know that it's done, it's finished. There's, there's nothing that we need to add to it. There is no work left to be done. Like the only thing that we bring to this relationship is our need, our, our lack. And then the Father and the Son and the Spirit, He brings everything. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you're currently at. It doesn't matter what's, what's been done to you, all, all the awful things. Nothing is held against you. And he goes on to, to heal and restore all the broken things in you. Nothing you can do to escape his love. Receive it. Receive the Father's embrace. This is the Father standing on the porch every evening waiting for his prodigal sons and daughters. And when we finally come back, he leaps off and comes running to meet us. It's all over the scriptures. All we have to do is receive the embrace. When I was in seminary, I had a class with uh, Russell Moore, a theology class, and he was a young professor, and he had just adopted a couple of boys from Russia. And he told this story I'll never forget. So he and his wife had done all this planning, all of the, the paperwork, all of the waiting and waiting, and they finally get the call that they can go and pick up their sons. They can go meet them. So they fly all the way to Russia, make it all the way to the, the orphanage. And they're walking back, and literally it, it, there's like a gymnasium filled up with rows and rows of cribs, with, with a baby in each crib. He said they walk in, and there was not a single sound in the entire room. And so he asked the lady, why is it so quiet in here? And she said, well, when they were born and they begin to cry out, nobody comes to help them. And so they learn that it's no use to cry, and so they just stop crying. And so across this entire room full of babies, there's not a single sound because they've, they've been trained, they've learned that nobody is coming to help them. Nobody's coming to pick them up. Nobody's coming to play with them, to carry them. Man, I think so often this is how we live as Christians. And we've been adopted. We've been made sons and daughters of the living God. He's our father. We don't even cry out. We don't even ask for help. We don't, we don't even ask him to come and, and pick us up and, and carry us and, and get us through the waters, get us through the flames. We have this unbelievable father that is waiting. He's calling us. He's, he can't wait for us just to look his way so that he might pick us up and carry us. Receiving the love of the father is your life's most important work. Is the most important thing you will do in your life, like full stop. And I know that's a big statement. 
But receiving the Father's love is the most important thing you'll do in life. It's, it's not what you can do in your ministry or your work. It's, it's not what you do in your marriage or your parenting. It's not even your, your spiritual disciplines and, and your obedience. The most important thing is to get the love of the Father into your heart. Everything else will follow from there. It's because the love of God is the most important thing in all the world. It's the treasure that's hidden in a field where you can safely go and sell everything else and just get that one thing because it's that valuable. It's like the old woman who lost her coin and so she emptied out her entire house and she swept it out until she found the coin because it was worth more than everything else combined. The love of the Father will make you radically secure. And he longs to pour this love into your heart to pour out his presence and his love into the dry grounds where you are. This is who he is. This is what he longs to do in your life. So I'm going to read a couple of verses one more time. And if you want to just receive these, you can close your eyes if you want. You can open your hands if you want. You can consider the face of God smiling down on you and speaking to you. This is what the Lord says. He who created you, who formed you, do not fear. Don't be afraid. For I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Since you are precious, and honored in my sight. And because I love you, I am with you. Father God, will you help us to receive this great love? Father, the most important thing we can do today or any day is to know and to believe in your love for us. Heavenly Father, it feels too good to be true. We can't wrap our minds around it. It's easier to see you as just a God of justice and and righteousness and law, but to see you as our Father, to see you as a merciful, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, Father, Lord, it's just hard for us. Lord, you have to overcome so much in our own hearts, so much resistance, so much pride, so much self-centeredness, but also so much fear, so much hurt, so much insecurity, so much doubt. But Lord, again, we come back and we say, take our, our hearts, Lord, reshape them, reform them, revive them. We need you, Lord. Lord, I know for sure that there are so many in here who are just struggling to get by, trying to get through the waters. Lord, even now, would you meet them in the most significant way? Would you help them to feel and to know your love for them? Not because of anything they've done, not because they've earned it or achieved it, not because of their present spiritual achievements, but because they are precious and honored in your sight. You made them. You made them and you know them and you're calling them. Father, may we as a congregation be a people of your love. May nothing else matter like your love matters to us. 
Father, would you pour this love out into our hearts, God? We say we're here. We want to receive. We are dry ground. We are hungry. We are thirsty. Would you come, Lord? We want more of you. We want more of you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.